Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Michael Spiegel from Dallas Seminary. We talked about his new book, Urban Legends in Church History. We talked about various urban legends and myths and false assumptions about things that have happened in the past, from the Apostolic Fathers all the way up through the Reformation. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Michael. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Michael Spiegel. But first, no big deal. Michael Spiegel is here. Michael, thank you for jumping on Church Grammar today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, you wrote this book uh, with your colleague, John Adair, called Urban Legends of the uh, of, of Church History. You've got 40 of them in there. Uh, the B&H Academic did this one. There's an Old Testament and New Testament version as well that are really interesting. So you ran through a bunch of them. The one that I that I noticed was missing, because I, I guess it's just so ridiculous that you didn't feel like you should write eight pages on it, is... Um, you know, did St. Nicholas slap Arius at the Council of Nicaea? I feel like that's that's the one we always got to tell people isn't true. But yeah, I, you know, I if I recall, I think we do have one little tiny paragraph devoted to that somewhere in there. One of the mini myths along the way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you're right. It doesn't deserve much. It's a great story to tell around Christmas and appears in memes, but uh, very little uh, historical background uh, foundation for that one. Yeah, I like to I like to share the meme and then just say I know this isn't historically true, but the meme is too good. <laughs> That's right. I, I like to say that it's it's truth transcends its historicity. That's right. Yeah. Now, I love I love the one of you know I've come to uh, give out presents and slap heretics and I'm all out of presents. That's my all time favorite. <laughs> yeah, right. So, all right. Well, let's work through some of these um, some of these urban legends that you have here. Um, let's start with with the first one. This isn't the first one in the book, but the first one I, I picked about six or seven here. You've got forty. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, the Lord's Supper as a sort of community meal. So there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the way we do Lord's Supper now is sort of it's set aside during a worship service. It's, uh, you know, it's one little sip of, of juice or wine and one little piece of bread. And there's the argument out there, you know, that actually this was just the community lunch or dinner or whatever that they had together. And there was all kinds of stuff there. Uh, so talk through a little bit of, the, of what are the sort of uh, what's the what's the legend? And then what are yeah. some some truths that we know? Yeah, right. So the way we set up the, the book is we, the title of the, of each chapter is kind of the articulation of the myth that you'll encounter. Uh, and so this idea that the Lord's Supper is just a, a community meal or any meal that you have with believers, a fellowship meal, I, I guess kind of similar to a potluck today yeah. or any meal you'd have breaking bread across the table with a fellow believer. And, and I encounter this, a lot of these you encounter in, uh, I don't want to meet some mean, but folk theology or just kind of popular things that are said sometimes even from the pulpit, but occasionally you'll get these from uh, in, in Christian books written by people who really should know better. But there's this idea that, well, the Lord's Supper, as it was originally practiced, was this fellowship meal, this community meal, and it became um, it kind of deteriorated into this, just taking a sip of, of wine and a, and a piece of bread as the body and blood of Christ. And, and so what we do is we, in each of the books we present, each of the chapters, we present the myth. And that is that is that, that one of those that um, this is this community meal originally. And then we present 
just the historical facts. So it's this one's not that difficult looking at the earliest writings of the church. Uh, in fact, from the apostolic fathers, the original disciples of the apostles, some of them uh, from the start and all the way through the Lord's Supper was um, the breaking of the bread as a symbol of the body of Christ, the participation together as one body, and the drinking of the wine as a remembrance of the blood that was shed. So whether any churches may have had charity meals, you know, for providing for the poor and the hungry uh, in connection with their meetings, etc. But that was never confused with that somber uh, observance of the bread and the wine as the body and blood of Christ. And, mm -hmm. and we walked through the, the historical documents demonstrating that. Yeah, so get, give maybe one example from a historical document that you think is sort of a, a slam dunk case that this is some sort of separate somber liturgical type thing, if you will. Yeah, so if, uh, I, I, could, I suppose I could look it up, but I'll just mention it in the book, we mentioned Ignatius of Antioch. So around the year uh, 110, roughly 108, most likely, he is writing to seven le uh, letters to seven churches, and he mentions on several occasions uh, the bread and the, and the wine, the broken bread and the cup. Um, the Didache from the first century, uh, whether people date it sometimes between 50 and 70, could be as late as 100, but um, their prayers given uh, for us to, uh, to say regarding the broken bread and then the cup representing the body and the blood. And so again, this is, you know, if you step outside the New Testament and look at the actual historical context, which establishes the on the ground reality, uh, these questions that are kind of floating around among pop Christianity are pretty clearly answered. So Didache, Ignatius, and then moving forward, several others, this is a, it's a uh, pretty consistent history focusing on the bread and the wine yeah and that particular language of even the cup you know the sort of set aside uh yes. you know drink if you will that 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 is not just like we all have you know a glass of water together and we're all saying exactly yeah. right and 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 the again i'm not opposed to fellowship meals i love potlucks just as, as well as anybody else but i think the, i'm a baptist idea. so i mean that's you know <laughs> yeah it's it's the third sacrament so <laughs> The, but to set aside the community church gathered observance around the table of the bread and the wine and replace it with mm -hmm. a potluck or some other kind of meal, uh, I think is goes way too far. Okay, so let's let's hit another one then. Um, pagan philosophy has influenced uh, or contaminated, or do you use contaminated Christian theology? So this is another. This is a conversation really that I feel like has always been happening but perhaps is ramped up in the last couple of years when we start talking about Christian Platonism. We start talking mm -hmm. about what were the fathers doing and not doing? What do we do with Aquinas, you know, and Aristotle, all these kind of questions. So talk through right. that a little bit, maybe just the, the general, what is, what is the myth? And then what are some things that you, that you respond to there? Yeah. And you see this a lot, this idea that, uh, and it's oftentimes connected to the notion that the church apostatized. And so at some point, very early on, it just kind of went astray, went off the rails, and the mixing or merging uh, of Christianity with Greek philosophy is oftentimes seen as the, the means by which the church was poisoned, in, in a sense. Uh, this is in the category of these myths where there's, all, there's a little bit of truth to it. So there is, you see, very early on in the second, third century, an attempt to engage, first of all, with philosophy, the best philosophy of the day that they that they, as they understood it, 
which was what we might call middle Platonism or not pure Plato, but a, a form of Platonism from the second century. And you see this in Justin Martyr, for instance, who was a trained philosopher, uh, converted in the early part of the second century, continued apparently to, to wear his philosopher's garb and when people would come to him as they would to philosophers for wisdom, he said he would teach them about the true philosophy, which is Christianity. And mm -hmm. it was his sort of evangelistic technique. So you do see in his writings attempts to make connections with philosophy and to explain Christianity in uh, ways that make sense to the prevailing philosophy at the time. But that tends to be the general approach among Christian theologians, using the language and imagery and concepts of the day to, to explain the gospel. What you don't see is this hostile takeover or this uh, complete poisoning and death of Christian theology um, by philosophy. I think that's an over-exaggeration. So some of our myths in the book are not so much completely untrue, except exaggerated yeah. uh, along the way. And this is one of those things. And I will say, just as a little footnote, there there are examples where where some church fathers do push this in extreme directions. And I think uh, sometimes the Alexandrian school, and especially Origin of Alexandria, has been rightly criticized for uh, filling in gaps. Uh, and there are some in in Christian theology where Scripture just doesn't speak clearly, or the tradition of the church hasn't clearly defined certain things and he filled in those gaps a little bit too eagerly with um with greek philosophy and and but the but the tradition kind of noticed that and pushed back against it so i don't think we need to be afraid of philosophy uh as a tool or any of the other sciences as long as we understand that that scripture itself is the the norming norm of all of those truth claims yeah, so as, as one who teaches historical theology, and you've been doing this for a long time, when you talk to students, let's say you're teaching a systematic theology class, and you're talking about the Trinity, what do you do with some of that, right? Because some of the language that we sort of take for granted now from orthodoxy of usia and hypostasis and, and some of these kind of things, uh, we are borrowing some terminology from, from later Platonism or middle Platonism, things like that. Sure. So at what point would you say... Uh, we're doing that well, and, and we should be doing that. Or would you say like, well, even if we don't really actually need that in the broad scheme of things, but it's convenient, like what, where are you at on that sort of scale? Yeah, that's a great, and that's a great example. It's the one I like to go to in, and I like how you put it that we're borrowing these terms from, from Greek philosophy or from the Greek language in general, but they do have usia, substance, essence, and hypostasis, the, well, substance, essence, I mean, hypostasis substance that's yeah. the, the latin transliterate transliteration translation of it so these are terms that are used in borrow but but in the, the trinitarian debates they're actually the, the meanings the philosophical meanings aren't adopted wholesale they're almost given christian meanings yeah in fact usia and hypostasis were in, in much greek literature and philosophy regarded as synonyms they're used often interchangeably whereas by the fourth and then fifth centuries, these terms by Christian consensus and agreement come to be given Christian theological meaning. So usia, I say, became to be defined as that which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit hold in common as one God, and hypostasis is that which distinguishes the Father from the Son from the Spirit. That's the theological significance given to these Greek philosophical terms. They no longer really carry that same philosophical meaning that they had originally so so we're really seeing the invention of christianese borrowing terms from 
Greek philosophy, not what is often charged is Christianity is being taken over by yeah. philosophical concepts. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you bring up like Usia, for example, you know, in, in, at Antioch in 268, it's rejected as unorthodox. And then later, you know, Athanasius yeah. comes back to use it to say, actually, we can use this in a way that is. So you're right. It's sort of a, I think Christianese is a really interesting way to think about it. It's a theological Christianese to say this, these words mm -hmm. seem to work well for our context to say what we want to say about what the Bible says. Yeah, it, it's funny too, and maybe this goes way deeper than you want, but at Nicaea, the, in the condemnations against the sayings of Arius, uh, it actually treats Usia and Hypostasis as synonyms. Yep, they were so used that way for a while. Yeah. The, right, anyone who says that the son is of a different Usia or different Hypostasis, they're anathema. Fast forward 100 years, and they're like, well, actually, we need both of these terms to mean mm -hmm. different things in order to explain Christian theology. So I think it's, uh, again, it's just an example of an over stating of a case yes they're borrowing language but they're in the process redefining it according to christian theology yeah and i think it's helpful too you talk about just you know reading the sources and seeing what they're doing it's very clear for most of them i mean gregory nazianzus says clearly we're plundering the egyptians i mean he says yeah. we use this insofar as it helps us talk about the bible you know so he even talks about well how do i engage these extra biblical if you will ideas only to the extent that they're helpful for, for articulating what the Bible says, which is a very different yeah. than what you're saying, you know, the takeover. And which, by the way, every generation in every language and culture does the same thing in the repackaging and representing of Christian truth and Christian doctrine. We do it. We do the same thing uh, as they were doing. And, and so we can't fault them for doing it. Yeah. Okay. So relatedly, you have another one in here that uh, the Trinity was invented after Jesus which is mm -hmm. one, you know, this is near and dear to my heart as uh, I did my dissertation on the Trinitarian reading of Revelation. I'm living in this world of all these people who are saying just this very thing, um, or, you know, that Christ was, was just an exalted angel and all these kind of conversations mm -hmm. that go around that. So talk through a little bit that myth, and then what are some, some responses you have to that? Great. Yeah. So let me just say there, there's a little bit of truth, and sometimes the truth is conflated with some, some major exaggeration, and that is what we were just talking about, the technical Trinitarian language used to describe, uh, you know, in a refined way, uh, the, the unity and the diversity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that definitely is something that was really hammered out and developed, and we settled on, and it's lasted for 1,700 years, this language of usia and hypostasis, or, or nature in person. So there is some development within uh, the basic Christian understanding of the Trinity, but the what I call the nuts and bolts, the raw material of Trinitarian doctrine, that there's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, Son is not the Spirit, Spirit is not the Father, there's one God, not three gods. Uh, that raw material is there from the very beginning. This is not uh, an invention of the fourth century, and, and several culprits get get kind of condemned for this for instance con poor constantine i mean I, i'm not a big fan of constantine in general but he gets blamed for all kinds of things mm -hmm. picking our bibles uh, inventing the trinity you know establishing a state church things that he was just not responsible for the trinity doctrine in in its in the raw was present from the first century on uh, and you see this you see right out the gate after the new testament uh, the very disciples of the apostles, not hesitating to call Jesus God 
and describing the spirit in the same kinds of exalted divine terms and even using the terms triados or trinity already in the second century so again it's um the the doctrine of the trinity is there essentially the same as is what we hold the refined language does take a couple hundred years to arrive at yeah no that's helpful that's a helpful distinction because you don't want to say john was uh you know, was reading nice, the Nicene Creed, and that's how he got his idea right. about Jesus, you know, but you do want to say that, I mean, it's, it's the flip, it's the, the flip side of that, which we kind of have been talking about is that these Trinitarian and theological debates were ultimately exegetical debates, they were ultimately about what does mm -hmm. the Bible say, and then let's find ways to attach correct language to help us, in part, you know, just, just root out heresy as it comes through, you know, you don't, you don't have the Nicene debate until Arius, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need to we need to probably get some good language here, you know, because Arius is quoting the Bible, Athanasius is quoting the Bible, but one of them is wrong, right? Exactly. And it's and it's reading scripture, but also looking back, what has the church always taught? And you do see anybody with an internet connection can do this. They can log in and find these the writings available to us and see this is the spirit has been very diligent in pre preserving a a single voice with regard to the Father, Son, and Spirit from the beginning. So again, to, to kind of sum up, it's not a doc. It's not a development of the of the Trinity, but a doctor a development within the the understanding of the Trinity that you see over the course of a few centuries. Yeah, I didn't write this one down, but you brought it up, and I think it's worth spending a little bit more time on. Is Constantine. Um, when I teach yeah. historical theology here, I show students. It's funny, you know, most of my students are undergrads. Uh, most of them are born, you know, late nineties at the, the latest for the most part. And I asked them, you know, have you, how many of you have ever read or heard of the Da Vinci code? And, you know, one or two might raise their hand at best. Like it's already sort of, but then I'll ask them, how many of you have heard that Constantine wrote the new Testament or Constantine invented the Trinity or something like that. And they all raised, you know, a bunch of them have heard mm -hmm. it. And then I'll show yeah. them a clip from the Da Vinci code where right there, he's, he's quoting these Gnostic gospels and saying, that uh, Constantine created all this stuff and that, you know, Mary Magdalene wasn't really what the church said she was and, and on and on and on. So this is something that whether you've seen or read the Da Vinci Code or whether you've read a Gnostic gospel, a lot of this kind of language uh, has become popular among atheists who you can find on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Rogan, I heard a clip from him a while back where he was talking to uh, Fred Phelps's daughter who had left Westboro Baptist Church. And he was like, I don't know why people even believe this stuff. I mean, we all know that Constantine invented the New Testament. It's like, no, we actually don't all know that, right? So, um, so all that to say, you know, uh, yeah, what are some of those things? I mean, I just mentioned a few of them, but, but mm -hmm. what, are some, what are some truth and lies in, in the relationship of Constantine to the church? Yeah, so, yeah, like I said, Constantine, I'm not a, I'm not sure I could be close personal friends with him if I lived in the day, but... <laughs> He, he wasn't uh, he wasn't everything they say he was. He, they say he, uh, for instance, he's the one who, uh, according to the Da Vinci Code, and like you said, a lot of people, he either he either selected or put pressure on the selection of certain books of the Bible, or at least he funded and bankrolled the, the Council of Nicaea, which selected the Bible. They say neither of those things are true. The 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 New Testament, the Old Testament was pretty stable by the time you get to Nicaea anyway, and the New Testament as well, with the exception of just a handful of books in the category of either doubted or, or included, which shouldn't be. But you're really talking about two or three, maybe up to five books in either category. The bulk of the New Testament was stable, frankly, already in the second century. So yeah. less than a century out of the New Testament, Christians everywhere seem to be using and citing and, 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 as scripture 
the, the New Testament that we have. But it, there is some truth. So Constantine does uh, fund, for instance, the copying of a number of scriptures for the church because it, to, to make reparations for burning of scriptures over the last couple centuries. So he is a, a definitely a patron of the church and does promote uh, a lot of things, but it's not a selection of the canonization or whatever of the Bible. It's not a declaration that Jesus is God, like the Da Vinci Code says. Uh, these things are things that have existed from the beginning. One thing from Constantine on, though, that you do have is it, it and this is different, and I have very mixed feelings about it, is prior to the fourth century and Constantine and Nicaea, the church could write against heresy and it could um, argue very strongly against heresy, condemn heresy, but Constantine and the, the patronizing of the state in uh, the church put teeth on that. So heresy could now result in um, being kicked out or exiled or these things that really do, I think, take a bad turn as we see in history later on. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, one of the, one of the others is, you know, Constantine invented the Trinity or he wanted the Trinity. So he called Nicaea together. In reality, he was, you know, obviously the church being split was not good for him politically. Uh, to say the least, there's other, these other things going on. Well, Constantine ends up being baptized at the end of his life by one of the only people who stuck with Arius after Nicaea. He was yeah, basically exactly. a close personal friend, Eusebius, a close personal friend. And, uh, you know, after Constantine dies, you know, one of his sons, he exiles Athanasius for a while because he likes Arianism better. And so it's, it's exactly. not this sort of just pure uh, history of the Roman Empire that, okay, now we have the Orthodox Trinity or the Athanasian Creed. And that's it. You know, I was Athanasius exiled seven times, I think, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. 17, yep. I can't remember something with a seven, but it's a lot. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the, the simple false narrative is the church didn't know what it believed or it was whatever. And then Constantine came in and says, no, this is what we're believing, the Trinity. And from that point forward, it enforced the empire, enforced orthodoxy and all the heretics, the poor things had to, you know, go off into the woods or whatever. <laughs> when in fact, it was a, this the reality is Trinitarian orthodoxy ends up winning the day by appealing to scripture and arguments and, yeah. and reason through the course of a generation while you have Aryan emperors on the throne persecuting them. That's mm -hmm. the that's the real story. So I think that we need to deal with the facts as they are. Yeah. Yeah. Athanasius was exiled 17 years, five times, 17 years. That's 17, five times, 17 years. There you but go. It, it's fat. Yeah. It, it's all that's all just very fascinating because, uh, you know, I'm just taking us on a, on a side trail here, but sure, you know, uh, Alexander of Alexandria, who was, Athena who was, who was, you know, one of the, the chief figures at Nicaea right before Athanasius, Athanasius worked with him, uh, you know, in the African synod, they, they have a synod four years before Nicaea and they already say Arius is wrong. And then Correct. Arius tries to, Constantine tries to get Arius back in the church. And he says, Hey, Arius, you just got to just give into the Nicene Creed and everything will be fine. And he says, you know, he tells Athanasius, hey, let Arius back in. Athanasius says, yeah, I'm happy to let him back in if he affirms the Nicene Creed. So it's, even Constantine didn't have as much, he couldn't just coerce Athanasius exactly. to do whatever he yeah. wanted. Athanasius was like, no, 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 it's not how, that's not how this works. We're not letting him in the church if he doesn't confess orthodoxy, even if the, empire, even if the emperor says so. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're not at that stage yet. And, and really, we never really get to that stage. It's a constant conflict between uh empire and church pope and, and emperor for for many many centuries yeah all right let's move into another uh set of centuries you have a, a good amount of stuff in here about the medieval period 
uh, they're called the dark ages, you know, by a lot of people, uh, those of us who study church history and who, who enjoy some of the medieval theology see, actually there's, there's a lot of good things there. It's not really a dark age in sense of, of theology and things like that. Um, a couple of things you got in here, like nothing good came from the dark ages. You know, the Roman Catholic church kind of rules Europe with uniformity and Europe is Roman Catholic. And there's all these kind of just, you know, the medieval period, I think is maybe the forgotten period in church history mm -hmm. in some sense, people like Nicene Creed and Reformation and the medieval is just, yep. so I, maybe we could cluster, you know, two or three things together, just big picture things about what's happening in the medieval period. Why is it, you know, not the dark ages per se? And then what's going on with the Roman Catholic church in the state at this time? Maybe just kind of a big picture sure. thing like that. Yeah, big picture. Yeah. So what I like to say is may, maybe the Roman Catholic church, um, wished they could have ruled <laughs> with uniformity and everybody did the same thing in lockstep. Uh, that may have been an ideal. Um, you know, some historians say that, that it's just kind of an adoption of Roman culture. You know, you go anywhere in the world where Rome built roads, they're all the same, you know, this uniformity. And so you create unity through uniformity. And that may have been an ideal and that they strived for in the West, uh, but they never achieved it. So first of all, there was a lot of diversity a shocking diversity sometimes among, that that even Roman Catholics are surprised at diversity of opinions on the Eucharist, for instance, deep into the, the medieval period. But things do start to kind of get um, get shaky in some parts of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Europe in the Middle Ages. That, but right away, people are calling for reform. So you have proto-reform movements already in yeah. the 10th century and moving forward. So, so once again, I want to say that the picture is not uh, uniform. So even if you can find very dark spots, and there are some, that doesn't mean that's the way it is everywhere. And the other thing we have to not forget is the Western Roman Catholic Church is not the only show in town. There's also the diversity of the Eastern Church, which is continuing on um, very differently with a kind of a different emphasis in theology than the Western Church. So that adds another dimension to it. So there are uh, some very good things going on in those realms. So as far as positive developments, those things that we can really glean from is um, I'm of the opinion that even bad examples we can learn from in with us. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things happened as examples to us and written down for our instruction. He cites a whole bunch of bad things that happened. So even if it were true that the medieval period had nothing but rubbish, uh, we are to draw from that and learn from it. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think the, the examples of uh, engaging with culture, development of Christian culture and arts is something we can look to uh, uh, in with some degree of discernment, but wisdom, uh, and learn from that. But I really do like um, the, at least as an ideal, the integrationist sort of approach to doing theology, uh, drawing from the best philosophy, the best science, um, drawing from a history of interpretation and, and tradition in, in a very thoughtful, careful, critical way. I think that's a great ideal. It's not always executed well. I can't say the medieval scholars did, you know, A plus on that, but I, I like the idea of the program and I think it's worth um, learning from. Yeah, so some of, some of the things that kind of come out of that period, obviously you've got uh, the, the great schism, which is a big one between the, the Western Eastern Church and basically where we now have Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and then Protestantism kind of comes out of that, that Western side. Um, 
so one of the things you have in here that, that I think is interesting is the Eastern and Western churches split over just one word in the creed, which was obviously the, the filioque, the idea that yeah. uh, does the spirit proceed from the father and son or just from the father? Nicene Creed says father. Uh, Western church started saying father and son uh, through, you know, particularly through Augustine and some others. Eastern church says, no, we're going to stick with the Nicene Creed. That's obviously the big theological pain point that a lot of people know. But what are some of the other things that are kind of underneath that? Because there's definitely a lot more to it than that. Sure. Yeah. So the East and West, you, you begin to see kind of a, a divergence in emphases in language. Obviously, one is speaking Greek and other languages. The West is quickly kind of by the end of the by the third century or so. They're kind of moving into more Latin speaking as the standard language, culturally, geographically, politically, you have Eastern and Western branches of the Roman Empire. So everything's kind of working against maintaining this unity from the start. I mean, it is almost inevitable that there's going to be some kind of a breach. But um, really, the, the, the thing that kind of lights the, the, the fuse and blows it up is this filioque controversy, which technically is a compound word, two words. Uh, um, that this confession, as you mentioned, and I see it, that the spirit proceeds from the father. And then in the Latin version, they eventually add filioque, just this little tiny, and the son, mm -hmm. and from the son. <laughs> so filio from the son and que means, que is kind of like the little ampersand. It's just like a, just a little and. <laughs> so it's, uh, right, just a little one. So it's, um, but, but, you know, theologically in the East, they, they do have a point that it does kind of change the, the relational dynamics of the persons of the Trinity. But the reality is you even have Eastern fathers describing the, the spirit proceeding from the father through the son or from the father. It's not like it's a complete novelty per se. So the real issue was raising this language or this idea of the spirit proceeding from the father and the son to the level of, of dogma. That is, the creed is that which all Christians, Orthodox Christians throughout the world uh, affirm as a fundamental doctrine of the faith. Mm -hmm. And the issue ultimately is who has the authority to make such a change or make such a declaration of what is the dogmatic language? And is it the Pope or is it the council? And mm -hmm. in the end, it's, it's really a debate about two different ways of doctrinal and disciplinary authority in the church. Conciliar, the whole church coming together and agreeing to something, or this one man on the throne as, or, or the, the papal seat. And that, that, is a, that is an unresolved conflict to this day. And mm -hmm. this is why East and West don't seem to be reconcilable at this point. Yeah, it's interesting that the filioque is obviously there. You, you mentioned some of the liturgy, the language. Uh, I think, I think, was it the East use leavened bread, the West West use unleavened yeah, bread? You know, yeah. really interesting little things like that. And in some sense, they do feel like, why don't you guys just figure this out and get along? It's not that big a deal, which I had Matthew Levering uh, on the podcast uh, a little while back, and he said something similar. Like, I think actually, if we would sit down and talk, we could actually come back together on a lot of things. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, the authority issue is the issue, right? Because it is um, the papal authority, you know, there, there's the whole development of Constantine as the, the new Rome or Constantinople as the new Rome. Yeah. And is that where the Pope actually is? You know, all that kind of stuff. It, that's, that's, you know, back in what the third, fourth century, they're already having some of these conversations about papal authority and what can a Pope, what can the Bishop of Rome do and not do. And then obviously it sees a whole new, you know, light. It's at a different height by that point. 
So yeah, you have to undo, sure. you have to undo a, a lot more than just, okay, fine. We'll say, and from the sun. Right. Yeah. It's much, much deeper than that. And, and the filioque is just a symptom, I think, of a much deeper issue that I don't see any good resolution to it apart from, you know, the, the, the Pope just kind of, in a sense, giving up his view as the bishop of the bishops of the bishops. It just doesn't seem likely to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But... Cause that's, that, that is the difference, right? Cause then everybody's going to yeah. come under him or he's going to step down. It's one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He, he has to, he has to just kind of emerge into the confraternity of bishops throughout the yeah. world. And he's just one of the, that, that is Roman Catholicism. So it's kind of like, it would be, a, you know, a change at the level of a repentance, I suppose. Yeah, and it does, it does seem, you know, I think, you know, last couple of years, you've had the Pope and the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople come together. There's been some apologies over the years for things that the Catholic Church has done. Was it, was it uh, John Paul II that apologized for the schism in some ways? But obviously not enough to, but, but all those apologies and all those concessions and handshakes aren't going to undo the authority structure and, you know, how everything is, is, yeah. is processed. That's right. So. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's see, I've got a whole list here. Let's see which one we want to we hit. Um, how about let's talk about, uh, you talk about the reformers uh, seeing the Bible as the only source uh, for theology. So talk through that a little bit. Yeah, this is a super common misunderstanding of sola scriptura, which does mean um, scripture alone. And the question really, though, that sola scriptura is answering is not, uh, what is our sole source of authority or what is our sole source of knowledge about God or even what is our sole source of true authoritative knowledge of God? Um, sola Scriptura. That's not the question that's being answered. The question in the context of the Reformation is um, what is the norming norm which cannot be normed? What is the uh, final authority in all matters of faith and practice? So in the in the medieval period, it was, well, Scripture understood by the authoritative teaching of the church and the magisterium, which is ultimately headed up by the papacy. So any papal decrees or um, councils uh, authorized by the Pope, et cetera, become themselves part of this growing body of, of, of law, canon law or tradition or authoritative teachings that must be all kind of coming to bear on any theological questions. And not just the reformers, but people prior to that said, no, scripture alone occupies that place as the sole written, inspired, infallible source of authority. Doesn't mean that your local pastor isn't delegated a certain authority by scripture itself, or, or that, that we can't draw from God's nonverbal revelation and creation as we're thinking through the interpretation of scripture, all of these things, or even tradition, what people have taught throughout church history right we are told in, in ephesians 4 that christ ascended on high and gave gifts to the church apostles prophets we have their writings in, in scripture but also evangelists pastors and teachers which we have all two thousand years of those so the, all of these contribute as um as we think through practical and theological issues so the question is what is the norming norm which cannot be normed that is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice that you don't correct it is the corrector not to be corrected. That's sola scriptura, scripture alone. So that was the, the normal view of the reformers. What eventually happens is this idea of sola scriptura gets radicalized, I think, in, 
in the Protestant tradition into, well, what is the sole source of theology? So people will even look, you know, suspiciously at you if you have anything other than the Bible uh, that you're using in the teaching of theology and drawing from. Yeah, so it, and it is interesting if you if you read the reformers, you know, obviously Luther is making some very strong uh, statements about the church's authority and tradition. Part of that is the, the very late medieval Catholic church does take on a new role of power that is not normal right. for much of church history. Um, you know, it, it may be even, I might say last couple hundred years, you might say longer than that, perhaps, but, but it's, it's, it starts to be a uh, Luther saying, hey, we, we just need to go back to like 400 years before, you know, he's not, he's not saying like, let's go back to the New Testament, even he's saying, hey, we, the church has actually been doing okay, but you guys are really getting it wrong. That's true, too. That's what a lot of Protestants don't realize is the reformers were not trying to go back to the first century. Um, they really had a high value um, viewed Augustine, for instance, of Hippo highly. I mean, I don't I'm not sure if you didn't have the Augustinian Renaissance in the late medieval period, you'd even have the Reformation. Yeah. I mean, it is uh, it's going it's looking back at at the early church, yes, scripture, everybody had scripture. It's not like scripture vanished and then Luther found a copy. Everybody had scripture, but they were reading it in light of the late medieval sort of dogmatic consensus. And then there's this renaissance, we're going to call it literally, of, of patristic study, studying in the first four or five centuries of the church. And I like to say, look, when, when the reformers looked at what the early church was saying about these things, comparing that to the late medieval period that that kind of they realized that those things are not the same and they they sort of got into a fight mm -hmm. and they sided with the early church so it was like scripture read in light of the the earlier consensus rather than scripture just ripped out of its context and its theology and kind of read as if for the first time that really isn't what the reformers were about yeah, I mean, it's and it's if you read them, like you said, I mean, Luther's quoting church fathers, Calvin, like in the preface Constantly. to the Institutes talks about the fathers, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like one of the first exactly. things he says. So, yeah, exactly. You can't get through Calvin's Institutes without becoming a, uh, you know, indirect expert on church fathers. It's, <laughs> it's constantly interacting with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is not whether or not tradition matters or whether or not the church fathers or creeds have any uh, authority or any maybe authority if you don't want to use that word some sort of uh, importance to the church it's that the once they become equal authority with scripture that's when luther correct gets uncomfortable yeah and scripture again it corrects the fathers the fathers yeah. don't correct scripture scripture corrects the pope the pope does not correct scripture that's it, it is what is the final authority the in the sole infallible written text uh to which we are accountable and that is scripture alone okay Let's do this. So uh, there's so many more that I could go through, but let's do this. What was there a single urban legend that ended up on the cutting room floor that you wish was in the book that you ended up having to cut or just couldn't include in the 40? You know, that's interesting. I, I thought um, just the other day, I kind of thought I, I wish I would have included something on baptism uh, because I encounter a lot of uh, no offense Baptists that say uh, that Bap infant baptism really isn't a thing until again poor Constantine or fourth or fifth century third century uh, when in fact it is quite clearly something that's present at least as early as the second century I personally don't think it it was the first and original practice um, but it's 
it came on the scene in the history way, way earlier than most people sometimes realize. I think that would be would have been probably something that would be helpful to clarify uh, that that for most of its history, Christians have been arguing about infant baptism or or believers' baptism. Yeah. So. There's probably two urban legends you'd have to correct there because you'd have to correct the paedo baptism has always been uh, or uh, yeah. or it wasn't until the fifth century or something like that right so you got kind of two two-headed monster there there's a third one too that you could plead in the alternative and say even if your position is that paedo baptism started in the first century um the requirement or that this was always expected that parents were going to bring their infant children to be baptized that clearly is not the case. It seems mm -hmm. to have been, even when they were regularly baptizing infants, nobody was compelled to bring their infants for baptism. It was up to the parents whether they would present for baptism or not. So, so there's a number of things. Uh, uh, I think it probably would have been good to have a, a chapter clarifying just the whole baptism issue. And of course, in, sometimes when you're presenting these clarifications, you, you make nobody happy. Yeah, right. Because I don't think you know, neither the Baptist uh, Creed or Pado Baptists are going to be happy sometimes with the actual history. So, would you say a lot of people, I, I think, assume, even even historical theologians assume that really it's probably not to the fourth century that Pado Baptism becomes Pado Baptism becomes the view, or the like very 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 predominant view, uh, maybe particularly with Augustine and onward. Uh, would you say that that's fair, or would you say that? Uh, there was always some credo going on as well, or kind of how would you think through some of that issue in terms yeah. of when it developed? If you could, if you could write that chapter now on the podcast, what would you say? That's a great, that's a good, so, so I will have to say, I have to, I'll have to still deal with uh, the fact that Augustine himself was not baptized as an infant, even though Monica, his mother was a uh, uh, hyper church lady. Um, yeah. She, she, there, there tends to be the historical consensus that, that, many Christian parents wanted to wait until kids got through their wild years before they were baptized. So some of them were holding, putting on the brakes on that. That's a, just a fact. And I, and I get it because once you're baptized, they took baptism super seriously, way more seriously than most traditions today. Yeah. And if, uh, let's say Augustine was baptized as an infant, and then what we read about him in the, in his confessions occurs, um, he's not treated as an unbeliever who's now converts and becomes a christian by baptism he is now treated as a uh person who's gone astray and is subject to church discipline mm -hmm. so you can see why parents would want to wait so i would say that's when it begins to be very very popular by the i would say by the fifth or sixth century it is kind of expected that your christian parents are going to bring your your infants to be baptized yeah i think i was just thinking of constantine again too when you said that you know he got baptized right before his death because he he thought baptism cleansed him of his sins. So he's like, I'm going to wait till the last possible moment. Yeah, get, get every last out. sin. <laughs> yeah. And then he was baptized by an Aryan. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it didn't go well, did it? So uh, maybe, maybe the students always ask me, you know, uh, you know, Constantine or Arius, are they Christians? I'd say by confession, probably not. Uh, by character, maybe not as well. Uh, but, you know, maybe the Lord has room for them somewhere. But uh, but that's, but yeah. as far as we can tell, it, that, that didn't go well for Constantine or Arius, did right? Not, so. Yeah. All right. So, um, You've got uh, a lot of work on historical theology. You've worked on the Church Fathers over the years. You've done a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, you've got this Urban Legends now. What, what's down the pike for you? What's, what's kind of the next project that you're working on? Oh, good question. Um, so I'm working on something in association in connection with uh, Dallas Seminary where I teach our 100th anniversary. So we're putting something together that I'm co-editing 
on um, scripture, kind of similar to our Exploring Christian Theology series we did a few years back, one on scripture. I'm personally writing a um, intermediate to advanced uh, text on eschatology, presenting a, uh, a kind of a, a re-articulation of uh, Irenaean premillennial eschatology, uh, which is my position, kind of the Irenaeus of Lyon sort of. I call it a contemporary Irenaean premillennialism, which is <laughs> not exactly what Irenaeus said, but in light of, you know, another 1800 years of history, you know, what would Irenaeus have said if he were <laughs> living today? Uh, so I'm kind of presenting that. Um, and it's, uh, that'll be coming out in a couple of years. I, I have a, uh, still now in the works with revision, such a new translation and commentary on the shepherd of Hermas that I'm still kind of working through and that'll be coming out probably next year. So a lot of different and some articles and, and such things. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff in history, some eschatology, but even my theology is, is pretty deeply grounded in history. Yeah. Now that, that irony and, uh, uh, eschatology. I'm I'm all about that. I, I don't know if that title would sell, but I like that title for sure. It has a different title, but I'm, you know, right up front, I'm 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 showing them my hand. I'm like, look, basically, I'm you know assuming Irenaeus was more or less correct on most of these things, and we're just kind of you know making a case for it. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't very often tell people to follow other people on Twitter, but I will say follow Michael Spiegel on Twitter. I was gonna do. If we had time, which we don't, I was just going to, I pulled about five, uh, you tweet theology 101, then it's always kind of, you know, a short statement on yeah. something about theology. And I thought about pulling like five or six of them and just being like, all right, give me your hot take on this, expand on this. But <laughs> maybe another time we'll just do a full like theo theology 101 uh, episode. That'd be yeah, fun. we should do it. That would be fun. <laughs> all right, Michael, thanks so much for, for taking some time with me. All right. Thanks so much for having me.